Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Okay, so somebody put a Reese's peanut butter cup up here from comments last week, which I'm grateful for. I'd also like to let you know I like Harley Davidson's. I like long tropical vacations. So if you're looking for ideas and you're this generous, God bless you. Uh, all right. I uh, want to do a little bit. If you have notebooks, and I hope you're keeping notes, uh, remember if you come in on a Sunday after having missed a Wednesday and you want to take notes along to the podcast and get that information off the website or off our app, it's available on the app as well. I didn't mention that last week and should have. Uh, if you haven't downloaded our app, it doesn't cost you a, a dime. It goes right to your phone, and you can listen to anything you miss. That's a little bit self-serving, I know, for the preacher to say you ought to hear what I'm saying, but really, I, I want you to hear what we're talking about collectively as a church. So even on those Sundays or Wednesdays, you can't make a night. really encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities as well as the paperwork is always out on the table uh, when you come in. And if you want to pick them up on Sunday, they'll be in the resource center on the other side of the cafe. Just go in and ask whoever's back there. They'll have them for you. And once you're familiar where it is, you just help yourself. And uh, hopefully those things are an advantage to you. So if you have your notes, I'd like you to just open them and just spend a moment reviewing uh, through the outline what we talked about last week, because it is going to connect with us to this week's topic. Uh, In a little bit, it's going to be a different approach than last week. Uh, But I'd like you to have a running head start by looking at those notes. So you'll see there when you're looking at your notes, in week one, we witnessed the revelation of God found in creation. So the first two chapters of Genesis tell and retell the creation story. And some people will ask the question, why? Now, now reminder, next Wednesday night, Michael and I will be here And uh, we've already received six to eight different questions from folks that have been sent in, or people have stopped me and and asked questions, and we're going to try to address those, and and Michael will have a chance to comment on his take on Genesis 1 and 2 as well. So it'll be a QA and a environment uh, for the most part next week, so I encourage you to come. I know for some of you, you're like, eh, I'll just listen to it, great, but really your participation next week will be an advantage. What we want to do during the series is not just throw all of this stuff on you, and walk away. We want to have some breaks in there where like a normal classroom, you can say, okay, Mark, you said this and Michael said this, but I was taught this. And we're, we're totally open to that. We want this to be a dialogue and not a monologue. And uh, hopefully that will pique your interest and increase participation as well, which is ultimately the goal is not for us to, to show you what we know, but to engage you in knowing it yourself and processing what it means. We're unashamed of what the Bible says. Without question, we have nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be embarrassed of. There's nothing hiding uh, behind the curtain that we're worried about. We're not, we're not projecting this on you so that we can gain advantage of you financially or control you. Uh, the church really is a servant to its people. And the best way a parent can serve their child is to teach them how to be fully mature, how to handle that. That's why losses... Uh, when you're playing as a little kid growing up, losing a game may be one of the most beneficial things you ever experience. Because it doesn't mean that you should become good at losing. But, uh, well, let me pause and give you a story. I'm going to talk about my son. That might be new to some of you. I'm going to talk about my youngest. Saturday night, Notre Dame lost a very, very tough game. And he lost his little 12-year-old mind. And the worst part was I was looking into a reflection of myself 
So I texted my dad on Monday and I told him what happened. And I said, for all the times I did that, I'm sorry. And I just looked at him and I said, you know what? Those Notre Dame players don't know you and I exist. And you may not have liked the outcome of that game, but they tried their very best. At the end of the day, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. We're going to worship in uh, Jesus together. At the end of the day, I think everything's going to be okay. I wouldn't have believed that at 12, but it sounded good in that moment. Sometimes becoming fully mature means we need to test each other, push each other to uncomfortable places so we can understand all that. So that's the background of where we're going to go. Chapter one was a revelation of who God is in creation. And tonight what I want to do is do something, and I want to show you where Jesus is found in creation. And the challenge for some of us is, this is going to be too neat. This is going to stretch your theology a little bit. You're going to go, well, how come I've never heard of that before today? So I'm not standing in front of you or sitting on a bench in front of you telling you that I'm smarter than anybody else. The research I've been able to do in the last five years to the book of Genesis has been incredibly healthy to me. It's answered some of the core questions I needed to answer for myself. But what I'm going to share with you, I'm very indebted to a book called Jesus of Theography. So take the word biography and theology and combine them. It's a book called Jesus of Theography. And it's written by Frank Viola and Leonard Sweet. And this book was one of the most beneficial things I've ever read. It takes you through the entirety of the Bible revealing where Jesus is seen. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to begin a series here called Shadows. And for five or six weeks, we're going to, as a church, look to moments in the Old Testament that smell and sound a lot like Jesus, but he's not in there. He's not in the story, but he's in the text. Does that make sense? The presence of Jesus is being foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And what I want to do is take you through the second day of Genesis, or the second, rather, the second telling in chapter 2 of creation. And I want to show you some things that if you pay close attention, you may see Jesus in them. And we're just going to use the outline of the seven days. We're going to talk about Eve, then we're going to talk about the garden. Let's pray before we be, as we begin, and then we'll, uh, we'll take off. God, stretch us. God, don't stretch us so far we snap. But stretch us far enough that we'll think, that we'll be moved, that we will look into Genesis in a completely different way and, and see the facts, but also see our Savior. I'm grateful for those who have returned tonight and those that this is their first night. God, as we challenge one another and stretch one another into faith, I pray that it will be pleasing to you. And that as, you, as we share these ideas and these thoughts, that your scriptures would open, that your scripture would breathe, that your spirit would affirm in us, even challenge us. And uh, God, protect us from false doctrine, but also protect us from our own decided doctrines that need to come alive and need to see new. So God, we give you our attention tonight, and uh, I pray that you will use what you've prepared me for, for something bigger than just this moment. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I created a word, pre-echo. I've looked it up. It's not in the Bible. How can you have something before the original source, right? An echo is the, the continuing of a sound that's bouncing back and sounding new or sounding secondary, right? A very simple, uh, uneducated definition. So what is a pre-echo? It's the foreshadowing concept. So what I'd like to do is Psalm 19, 1 through 5, is a very profound psalm. And I want you to, to listen to it. And I'd love you to have your Bibles open to Genesis 
chapter one as we process this, because I want you to see the text. I don't say this enough. For some of you, I've said it too much. For others, I haven't said it enough, but it's very, very important. You should not trust me. You should not believe that I know everything about the Bible for you. You should stop and say, can I see what Mark sees? Does it make sense what he understands? Have I been taught well? That's why having your Bible in front of you on Sundays and Wednesdays is very, very important. Now, I had somebody challenge me, and they said, well, you put it up on the screen. How do you know I put the right words up? I mean, I could put right in the middle of a verse, give Mark a raise. You wouldn't know it's not there. So have your Bibles in front of you, the inspired text, because when you look back in those passages later, you're going to remember conversations. You're going to remember moments. Okay. Psalm 19, 1 through 5. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It's interesting, when you read that psalm, what is the psalm is trying to get us to understand? How is he using creation? It says that creation reveals God, week one, but it also says that creation reveals The son, a bridegroom, a champion who has completed the course. Who does that sound like? So if you read Psalm 19, and it's truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, then it's not only telling us that creation talks about God, but it's also revealing this insight that creation has more to offer us than that. Talks about the knowledge of God, the son, the bridegroom, and uh, the champion. So when we look at this, we may be asking the wrong questions in the primary concerns of of Genesis. Your questions are fair. But remember, the question is not how. The question is why and who. This is what Genesis answers. To the audience that Moses edited this text, my bias out front, that Moses edited these stories and he put them together and he had them collected and written down to be shared with generations. What did that first audience take Genesis to mean and why? They certainly weren't looking for a scientific explanation of how it all came about. Our generation, which is an amazing trait we have, we even believe when it concerns Jesus, that the first century, those that lived with Jesus, there's no way they were intelligent enough to understand all the complexities of the text. Yet, if you look what they had to work with and what they produced both mechanically and Uh, with medicine and everything else, I think they were probably a lot smarter than all of us. And yet they recorded eyewitness accounts, but we have a generation today that will look at that and say, well, it couldn't have been that. It had to be this. As if someone living 2,000 years later could validate the eyewitness account of someone in the moment. When Genesis was written, who was it written to? It certainly wasn't a science textbook. So if you feel like you have to apologize to our skeptics because it doesn't answer things. I heard a, a... sermon this past week, a buddy of mine said, hey, go listen to this. And I listened to it and it was fascinating. It talked about the dietary foods. Now you may think I'm getting on a tangent, but hold with me. Talked about the dietary code found in Leviticus, why you couldn't eat certain animals. Well, we now know why those, those foods were outlawed, if you will, from, it was called this study that hadn't been created yet called microbiology. 
that what's the worst thing you can eat? Raw pork. Why were things like that outlawed for Israel to eat? Because it would have wiped them off the face of the earth. God wasn't punishing them, although going without bacon might seem like it. God was actually saying, I know more about what you can take and what you can handle, and these foods you can't eat because of microbiology. Now we've got ways to preserve that, which is part of the reason that God would come back and say uh, to Peter, uh, it's unclean, or it's no longer unclean. So we have to factor out what was God saying in Genesis through Moses. It does not answer how. It answers why and who. So, There's a few things I want you to see here in creation. The first creation is a picture of the second creation in Christ. That's the thesis statement of my presentation tonight. And I'm not going to bore you with all these little tangents, but I want you to be able to track with me. I am going to ask you to work hard tonight not to change channels, not to look at your phone to see if the cardinals are beating the pirates, but just hang with me because I think I can build a case for you to see the beautiful depths of Genesis that was revealed to me. So, there's a few things. Uh, Paul often uses the creation terminology about the work of Jesus. I don't think it's accidental. I think the word that Paul uses in the Greek is the same word that is written in Genesis 1 and 2. He's alluding to something. He's, for, he's taking the foreshadowing of creation and he's adding a spiritual element to it outside of the elemental element of it. And then you look at First John, or you look at the gospel writings of John. Um, read John's gospel and pay attention to the number of times John says, in the beginning. Do you think that's accidental? I tend to believe it isn't. Read First and Second John, and we're presented with the new creation God is doing in the midst of the old creation. Sounds like Genesis. And look at the phrases in First and Second John of the next day. When you see these passages, it echoes back So here we go, day one, the birth. Day one, the birth. Genesis one, two through five. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So Genesis 1-2 unfolds the state of the earth. Look at it with me. It was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the earth. Now, theologians have talked about this for generations now. If I told you, well, just let me repose the question then. I'll start over. Could it be possible that a definition of you before you met Jesus was without form and void and darkness was over the face of who you were? Would that be at least a close depiction of how we felt once we were freed? That we were formless and void and darkness was everywhere. If you think about those that undergo depression, what is the uh, imagery they use for their depression? Darkness. When you unfortunately have to see or read suicide accounts and people who have survived their suicide or who wrote their letters, they'll often use terminologies, not biblical terminology, but it's universal. It was dark, it was empty, it was nothing. So how was the world depicted before 
God called light into being. Very much the condition of us spiritually. Here we see a picture of what describes man without God. So on day one of creation, God declared, let there be light. And here we have the new birth. John chapter one should be there in your notes, verses four and five. Notice when I tell you that John sounds a lot like Genesis. Now, you know, the question that I raise in my own mind, I'll raise it and answer it. Did John intentionally try to sound like Genesis? Was that his plan? Or did the Holy Spirit just lead him to write inspiration? I'm open to either. But John's terminology is very familiar to the Genesis creation account. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Down to verse nine. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. When Jesus was born, the light of the world made its entrance into the planet, and the light penetrated the darkness. Following the literary form of Genesis 1, John says that there was life and the light was in the light of men. So what happens on this first day of creation? The spirit, notice this, it said the spirit is hovering over the the darkness. And that word hovering should flash you ahead of time to the dove coming down over Jesus at his baptism, hovering over him. The same presence that the Spirit was looking over creation as the light entered into it, and that light brought life. So how does a new birth take place? Go to your New Testament. The, The new birth in every one of us takes care by spirit and the word, right? Would you agree with me? I mean, fundamentally, we know that we are brought to life by the power of the word of God, brought to us by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the power that lies within that. So let me back the tape up. How did creation happen? We talked about it last week. That's why I wanted you to review your notes. Who did all the work? God did. What kind of work did God do? He said, and it was. The word of God combined with the spirit of God brings about what? Life. Creation begins the same way in us spiritually that it did in Genesis chapter one and two. This is when we start to get a sneak preview of this guy unnamed in Genesis called Jesus. So in week one, we're gonna see God. In week two, we're gonna see Jesus. And I may insult some of you and it's not my intention. But I believe most of the questions that plague us about Genesis will end when we see God and Jesus in the text. Then we'll understand why it was written to reveal to us what God was about to do and the perfect symmetry of a God who did not abandon us. So Paul saw the symmetry in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, I'm not assuming you're antagonistic, but when you teach, especially when you teach adults, you have to play off to those that are gonna buy everything you say and those who don't buy anything you say. So what I want to offer you here is, can you see that Paul saw the symmetry between Jesus and the first day of creation? He says, as God spoke light out of darkness, Jesus was brought to be light into the darkness, spiritually. Through God speaking his word, we are awakened spiritually and our eyes are open and we can see. As a result, we're, de- we're delivered from a term used in your New Testament, the dominion of what? Darkness, a term used, describing what it is pre-Jesus, the dominion of darkness. 
The principle of regeneration is seen over and over and over. You go to the story of Noah. Okay, the rain comes, and what does he send out to find life? So he sends out a raven, and the raven doesn't come back. Okay, why doesn't the raven come back? What kind of bird is the raven? Carnivorous, correct? So you think if the world flooded, there might be some, uh, sorry for the imagery, some carcasses floating on the water? Think a raven could survive without coming back to the boat? What can a dove come back? A dove's not going to eat meat, is it? The dove could only take off and bring back a what? An olive branch, which is really fascinating with the number of those references throughout the scripture. So you can see this, new day, life comes about, and God brought the light. According to Peter, the old world perished under the water of the flood, and eight souls were saved in the ark. The burial of the old earth versus the new creation. There's a lot of imagery here we're going to dance with here in a little bit. Day two, his death. So day one seems to lead us toward an understanding that Jesus coming into the world was a new creation. The new kingdom would be birthed through this one who would dispel light. In day two, we have his death. And God said, verse six, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So on day two, God created the firmament, or the heavens, and separated the water. Consequently, there is water above, which most, if I understand correctly, most scientists presume is fresh water. And then there's the water below, which he called the seas. And what kind of water is that? Are they distinct forms? Yes. Having just been able to go to Israel back in May, and having gone into the Dead Sea to see some of my friends basically sitting on top of the water without much ability to go underneath it completely. And the one guy who decided to do that regretted it terribly for three days. Michael reached down in the water and pulled up a chunk of salt like you couldn't imagine would just be sitting there. It is just coagulated into this form and this monster rock. I have a, a small piece of it I broke off of his excursion and put it in my office. So why do they call it the Dead Sea? Because the concentration of salt water is unlivable except for one form. What lives in the Dead Sea? You guys are really quiet. It's a simple answer. You know it's not birds, right? Not palm trees. What's in the Dead Sea? Fish. There are some forms of fish that can survive in parts of it. Why? Because the salt can't penetrate into the fish. Why do you salt fish? Since most of them live in salt water. And I know some of you are going, I don't eat fish. Okay, trust the, those of us who do. You get a good piece of fish, you're going to salt it, right? Because you're not going to bite into it and go, this must have been in salt water. You have no idea it was. Well, anyway, this imagery between fresh water and uh, salt water is a distinction that some theologians have grabbed on. I'm going to confess to you, I wouldn't have picked this out, but when I read it, I was like, wow, I can see it now, where I couldn't see it before. The emphasis for some theologians is on the division of things above from the things below. And when you read your New Testament, can you see the comparisons there? When things are talked about things of the earth and things of below, are those normally good things? 
when things are talked about of the heavens and above, what are they? They're normally the ideals. They're normally the things we aspire toward. So this comparison is used a little bit here that throughout the Bible we have the principle of separation. Clean from the unclean, earthly from the heavenly, and carnal or fleshly from the spiritual. So some people believe that that what day two is alluding to is the same thing the cross alludes to. That the cross was the instrument of separation and division. Every one of us, every single believer and every single unbeliever, every believer who's walked away from God and every believer who will return to God, we're all going to face one simple moment in time. What did we do with the man on that cross? It'll separate life to death, won't it? And as the cross is the separation and Jesus' death is the moment in time that God will, will take the heavenly and the earthly and completely divide it. It goes back to the parable, Jesus told, of the wheat and the tares. Tares grow up in the wheat, they look just like wheat. But what they do is all their damage is underground, tearing away at the, the subsystem of what we see from wheat. And so when we look at day two, it seems to be alluding to the choice that God would make that as he separated the fresh water from the salt water, that he would also be separating life and death, separating the heavenly and the earthly. The authors of the New Testament describe the world as beneath or of this world. It's interesting terminology. Uh, For throughout the cross of Jesus, we see some interesting things. Galatians 4, Paul says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And in chapter 6, verse 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The word of God bringing the power of the cross into our life brings division. And the Holy Spirit brings conviction of that and the sacrifice on the cross either saves you and that's why in a debate today where whether all world religions are the same because they all ask for peace, they all ask us to get along, they're all looking for unity. The truth of the matter is the one thing no other world religion can offer you is the sacrifice on that cross to redeem your sins. Every other world religion asks you to accomplish something that will bring about God's favor. We believe Jesus brought about God's favor and by his grace we're recipients of it. And now we'll have an invitation. (laughs) I'm just teasing, just seeing if anybody's out there. But you can see this separation concept in creation is significant for us and how God is going to take us from this place and put us into this new kingdom. And again, the older I get, the less I believe it's on a cloud with an angel and a harp. Okay? Day three, his resurrection. See if you can't see the symmetry here. He's in what's described on day three and his resurrection. We got a comment too that we didn't leave you enough space for notes. You have 19 pages tonight, so I hope you have enough space to write. If you're just writing smiley faces and question marks, then I failed you. Let's read verses 9 through 13. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, 
plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So on the third day, God gathered the waters together and allowed the dry land to appear. So what we have is when he separated the heavens from the the waters below, while he was creating this, the entire world was covered with water. And then God separated and allowed the dry land to come out. Okay. So, third day, if you study numerology, and you can go crazy on it, but it's, there's some great benefit to it if you understand the rabbinical teaching of what the numbers one through seven specifically mean. If you study numerology at all, the number three is, the, is a sign of resurrection. The trinity, the completeness of God bringing life. There's a lot of imagery with the three, but it's the day of resurrection. Jesus was, let's do a little pop quiz. Jesus was raised on what day? Third day. Following the great divide of the cross, we see the resurrection in Christ typified by this day of creation. Throughout scripture, the sea is often associated with death. And I didn't realize this till a, a guy that I've, I've learned to listen to and appreciate his teaching style. His name is Dr. Patrick Mead. He teaches in uh, Nashville, I think it, well, outside of Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, Dr. Mead was talking one day about how going into the water in the days of most of the Bible time was one of the most threatening things you can do. That's why the story of Job is so spellbinding to us, to be thrown into the depths of the sea, to die, to be on the boat knowing you were going to crash and die. When Paul is going on the missionary journey and his, the boat gets capsized and he tells everyone, don't, don't go away, stay with the boat and we'll live. Go away and you'll die. There was something about the sea. That's why the image of baptism rather, is a bigger issue to the people in which baptism was originally given than we've allowed it to be for ourselves. Because going down into the water meant death before you came out. And so this imagery of God pulling back the seas and creating this land, and from land some amazing things happened. Once the salt water disappeared... The dry ground appeared, and what, what started? Growing green things. Trees and plants began to grow. Can you see the imagery of resurrection? Have you noticed that historically, when the church spoke more in word pictures and icons than it did in tablets and books, what's the sign of the resurrection? Anyone? Flower? A flower breaking through the hard earth and coming to life and showing beauty. And so what do we see here in the the day of creation? Trees and herbs came forth. They were bearing seed and fruit. And if that's a stretch for you, and listen, some of this we can, it'd be great. We can sit down over a cup of iced tea and both be wrong for hours. But the challenge I want you to see here is in John 12, 24, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it produces only a single seed. But if it dies, or excuse me, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Who was he talking about in that parable? What was Jesus meaning by saying a seed in a jar won't get you anything? A seed in the dirt will get you fruit. Well, if you know where John 12 falls in the story, you know that Jesus is telling this just days before he heads to Jerusalem. And what happens there? Instead of protecting himself, what did, what did he allow? He allowed his seed to be planted in the ground, symbolic of his death, and from there you and I have life. 
So when the waters go away and the earth is allowed to do what it's supposed to do, there's life. He was speaking about what happened to him. Jesus also spoke to himself as the true vine. You'll see some of the images that Jesus uses would be very consistent with this day. In fact, uh, Paul says in Romans 7, 5, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. So it contains echoes of the third day, resurrection out of death, multiplication, seed, fruit, fullness. Fourth day, his ascension. This is where, if you remember from last week, if you were here last week, I told you that the first three days, let's see if you can remember the words. The first three days of creation were about, it's an F word, that gets people's attention in church. You all snap to attention. Okay, not that one. What's the word? Forming. The second three days are what word? Filling. God formed the world in the first three days. He then filled it with his intentions, days four, five, and six. So we're making that turn here. Notice that you go from his birth to his death to his resurrection, and then you go to his ascension on day four, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the, or lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. On day four, our focus shifts from the earthly to the heavenly. Now, notice that God has put everything in place here, but he moves from the ground to the skies. Which is interesting because after the resurrection of Jesus, do you remember what he said about returning to his father? He uses a a key phrase. Just imagine that you're going on a business trip. Uh, Maybe your children have children of their own now, or maybe you've got great-grandkids and Just remember, though, when you were a parent and you were leaving your kids at home with a babysitter or maybe the dad, and they were panicked. And you looked at this child pleading with you not to go, and you said words along these lines, I have to go to work, right? What did Jesus say when the disciples were wondering why he was such in a yank to leave? He said, I have to go so that the Spirit comes. So that the resurrection was not just for him to walk around going, I'm back. The resurrection was so life would break out and that his Holy Spirit, which hovered over the first creation, could hover over the new creation. So he takes off. God created the sun, the moon, the stars, and put them in the heavens. And they oversee, notice the connection, the sun, moon, and stars oversee the earth and they provide for what's going on on earth what it needs. You know, I know that I'm picking at people who may not even be in the room, but there's questions about whether this the earth came about by accident. And and tell me, when they state that if the sun were 10 feet in either direction from us, we couldn't make it, that's just a lucky choice? Or was there not intelligent design to all of this? And so you look, the stars were put. They marked times, signs, and seasons. I, I, I didn't notice this. I'm a city kid, all right? I didn't grow up out here in the country. And 
So growing up in the city, I, I think it's funny that in my office, I, have a, I face the east there, and the morning I come into the office and I have one of these long, uh, thin windows. And uh, all spring and summer long, it's awesome because the, the sun shines right across my desk on a part of the office. I started coming in recently and I'm getting a tan just on this side of my body because the sun's baking my bald head through that window. And I love watching the sunrise in the east and I love when it's quiet out here and the cows are singing and it's kind of a different world and I enjoy it. But all of a sudden I'm pulling my shade down because it's like that sun's moving. Isn't it funny? The earth is rotating and the seasons are coming and now I know having been in that office for six months, I know when it's spring and now I know when it's fall. How do I know that? It's by what the moon does and what the sun does and how the earth tilts. And all of that is by God's design. And on this day four, he sets some demarcations out using planets and sun. When we consider the sun, I think you should see the direct correlation. The reason I had us read Psalm 19 was he's referred to not as S-O-N, but he's referred to as what? S-U-N. Now, why would, why would that be there? Why would that be in the text? What's the illusion? He is the embodiment of God's light. As the sun is the brightest star and it provides heat and everything we need to keep this world in balance, things growing and so forth, Jesus is exactly the same thing. He is the source of all light. He stands high above the earth in, in ascendant state, just like the sun. He's the center of the universe. In the words of Malachi, you might remember this from Christmas, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. How's it spelled? S-U-N. The Old Testament prophets, led by the inspiration of scripture, saw the sun in in the heavens and thought, it'll be the Messiah. The Messiah will perform the same functions the sun did. Luke 1, 78 and 79. This is said by John the Baptist's father, who if you might remember was a priest, He was surprised by his son's birth, so much so that he doubted. He lost his ability to speak when he named his son John, as God had told him to. His obedience freed his tongue. And then he prayed this beautiful prophetic prayer. This is a piece of it, verses 78 and 79 of Luke 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Both John and Peter, both in separate writings, refer to Jesus as the bright morning star. In the natural realm, all life on earth depends on the sun. In the spiritual realm, this is an easy one, church. You guys can do this one. All life depends on Jesus. When we behold the moon, this is the one that I looked at, and I'll be honest, the first time I read the book, I was like, come on, you're stretching the soup really thin. And then I read it the third time, and I'm like, oh, you got me. When we behold the moon, we're reminded of the church. I'm like, what? But think about it. Like the sun, what does the moon do? It reflects the sun onto the earth. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Hey, I'm hearing voices now. What's the church supposed to do? Reflect the sun onto the earth. We're to be lights. Do we generate our own light? Absolutely not. We're a reflection of the sun of righteousness. And I love this because then it also, we help guide our feet into the path of peace. Does that sound like something the church is supposed to be doing? Helping people understand how to follow Jesus. 
There's a, there's a wide way and there's a narrow way. One seems right unto man and one is, leads to death and one leads to life. So, as we behold the sun, the darkness of the world can't see the real light, but it can behold the beauty of Christ in the church, which reflects the light. And as the moon, the church reflects the light of Christ and is a faithful witness to his light in a dark world. Scripture tells us that we as individual Christians are like stars or distant suns that dispel light wherever we're at. Matthew 13, 43, we shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In Genesis 1, 14, we're told that the sun and the moon are to divide the day from the night. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Okay, I need to call a timeout. First of all, the rotisserie lights work on my contacts in a very bad way. So you all have halos around you. So you're all angels. So be, be pleased. So a stretch, what I'm showing you here, that these echoes of Jesus throughout creation, can you see them? So I was asked when someone saw my notes, they said, pre-echo. I said, well, yeah, you can look at it as a pre-echo, but it could be an echo since Jesus existed before all things were created. He's revealing himself through the process of creation in a wonderful way. Now, did God go through all this pomp and circumstance so I could tell you about this 2,000 or 4,000 or a billion, depends who you believe, later? No, I think what you're seeing here is that God in his infinite wisdom is always revealing himself. There's nothing God does that isn't telling us about him and then him telling us about ourselves. And so in that, I hope as we do these last couple of days, uh, you'll not get bored. Day five, his indwelling life. This is the continual now filling of what he formed. So his ascension was to place himself above all things. And in day five, his indwelling life seems to be displayed. Verse 20. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. The fifth day reminds us of what it means to live in the sunlight, what it means to live in the presence of the, of the one. And this is different than plant light. On day five, plant life rather, on day five, God created a life that is higher than unconscious plant life. He created conscious life in the waters and in the skies. Did you see the division here? He put fish in the, in the waters and he put birds in the sky. Notice there always is this upper and lower part of creation. There's always this separation and God is filling it. Notice that, they add the, that the added light of day and day four, the sun, moon, and the stars allowed what was created on day five to exist. Intelligent design once more. If you try to put the fish in the water before there's the sun, is it gonna happen? Nothing's gonna happen. So herein lies an important spiritual principle. Here's your fill in the blank. With more light comes higher life. Frank Viola preached a message on this and just blew my mind. With more light comes higher life. With more revelation of who Christ is, 
comes higher spiritual life, resounding life. The reason many of us have had periods in our life where the Bible's not alive and church is a, is a drag and you feel no connection with God is not because God's gotten old. It's because we spent so much time in the darkness, the light horrifies us. I thought of this a long time ago when I was like 20 years old and I was really smart. I thought the church is like someone turning the light on in your bedroom at 5 a.m. It's not always well received. No one's ever turned the light on at 3.30 in the morning one of your children to wake you in the middle of the night or your roommate come busting in on a weekend when you went to bed earlier and they come in at 3.30 and they're all loud and crazy. No one ever wakes up and goes, so good to see you. But that same light turned on at 6 o'clock at night in the comfort of relationships is appealing, isn't it? So every Sunday morning we gather here, we turn the lights on. And some people turn their head and go, stop, eesh, turn it, relax. And other people are like, I'm, I can see now. I'm in a place where I can pay attention. I can see. So with more light comes higher life. Spiritually speaking, using Old Testament imagery, there are three places we spend our time in, okay, on this earth. I'm, I'm hearkening back to what we're going to learn in Genesis and Exodus. Uh, our rejuvenated spirits, because of what Christ has done in us, we are in the promised land. And yet, because our flesh fights the slavery of sin, we're also in Egypt. And yet our experiences in traveling between those two are called what? The wandering in the wilderness. Isn't it amazing that the first thing upon his calling and baptism, the first thing that God did with Jesus was what? Now, I, don't, I want you to understand what the text says. The text doesn't say Jesus got out of the Jordan River and said, I'm going to the wilderness. It said the Spirit led him and took him there. So even though we know we're in the promised land, we also feel the burden of Egypt. And we also have this long journey ahead of us to make it through the wilderness, trusting God to provide every step of the way. So the fifth day teaches us that Christ's life can live even in death. That the life that Jesus gives us, although challenging, uh, brings us hope. The life that we receive being regenerated by the resurrection of Jesus and by the hovering of the Holy Spirit is a life that passes through death. It's a life that enables us to swim through the Dead Sea and survive. Because Jesus cannot be touched by death, the same is true for his followers. Death will surround us, but we will, we will walk out on the other side. Like the one who created us, we are in the world, but not of the world. And I think it's beautiful. Like the eagle, they soar above all things on the earth with grace, power, and majesty. There's that passage in Isaiah. He said, well, we're running, not grow weary, and we will mount up on wings like what? So in this whole hope, when he turned the birds loose in the air, birds are amazing things. Unless they fly into your windows, they seem like highly intelligent creatures. Braden and I get a kick out of it. My, my wife sees it completely different. But Braden and I love those daredevil birds, and I promise you, they're looking at each other going, it's like me and Isaac playing, and all of a sudden I say to Isaac, how close can you get to that windshield? And two birds will head toward our car. You've seen it, and at the last second, one will dodge. You know the other one's going, you rule. My wife just thinks they're stupid. I'm like, no, they're brave. But he turned the birds loose in his design, and there was a place for them to rest, and there was water for them to be refreshed, and there was food for every kind of bird. 
He turned all that loose. There's life available in God's creation. So when predicting his resurrection, Jesus used himself and the spirit interchangeably. So that whole concept of the birds and the fish in the the salt water that aren't penetrated by the salt and come out of it unscathed, all of that seems to have some powerful imagery. Romans 8.11 sums up the meaning of the fifth day. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Picture the, the multiple times you see about the dove. Day six, his reign, R-E-I-G-N. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move around the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. On day six, God created the land animals. And the land animals depict yet another part of Jesus. It's really simple. I won't belabor this one. Jesus is called a lamb. He's called the lion. He's called the the bull or bullock, the ram. He's the perfect red heifer. And all the other animals used for Israel's sacrifice. When he was slain as the Paschal lamb on, on Passover, on the week he was betrayed and murdered, he fulfilled everything. And so Jesus is the real sacrifice. And because of his real sacrifice, we're going to jump to verse 26 now and read down to verse 31. And you'll see how his reign plays into this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now remember, From last week, I told you that one of the things about God that's revealed in Genesis is he is plural. So when you see this, you see the plurality again. Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he... all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So the creation of the land animals was followed by the apex of his creation. The animals served a purpose, the plants served a purpose, the birds served a purpose, the fish served a purpose. It all worked together perfectly. Then he made man. So day one is regeneration, his, his, the birth. Day two is the work of the cross, his death. Day three is the resurrection, Day four is the ascension. Day five is the spirit forming us and filling us. So at the end of the Christian walk, culminated in the return of Jesus, everything will be made perfect. Because what did God tell Adam to do? Reign. Name the animals, work with the animals, take care of the trees, take care of the produce, take care of all the things that I've given you. I've given you everything you need to reign with me. So Adam was given responsibility over the garden. 
When Jesus came, what was he coming to do? Through his death, burial, and resurrection, to regain control over all that was lost. His perfect sacrifice as the, as the lamb allowed him to reign. Remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan offers Jesus one of the temptations is that I will give you reign over all this earth? I believe he could have because this was his present kingdom. He could have given him power like no one else had. But Jesus waited for God to give him complete reign to regain the complete perfect uh, uh, creation that God had put together. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 10. But then that which is perfect has come then that which is in part will be done away with. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know just as I am also known. Talked about that last week. Passage says that when Jesus comes and he returns and he sets his reign in order, his new kingdom will dominate. And those that are not part of his new kingdom will be terminated. They will be punished. They will be sent away. And you can talk about hell's torture. You can talk about the lament. You can have a a, a red Satan with pointy ears and a pitchfork if you so choose. None of that imagery is biblical. The, the greatest pain in hell will be the isolation from the goodness of God. That will be the ultimate punishment in hell, is being isolated from God and his goodness and his care. If you've ever been alone, now for those of us that are introverts, sometimes that's a vacation, but even introverts, after a season of being alone, need companionship. When Jesus comes back, he's going to separate those who wanted nothing to do with him and he's going to grant them their wish. There are going to be, they'll have nothing to do with him. And that sun that brings light and life will be gone and they will live in darkness and all the fear that that brings. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So when Jesus returns, he will bring everything under his control. Philippians 3.21, he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. <clears throat> Excuse me. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 47, Paul called Jesus the last Adam and then he called him the second man. I want to play with those terms here for a little bit. According to Genesis 1, Adam was created in God's image. According to John 14, Jesus is the perfect image of God. When they said, show us God, and he said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So Adam was the, made in the image of God, and Jesus came as man in the incarnation as the perfect image of God. Just as Adam was given authority to rule over the earth and all that God created, so Christ, the second Adam, bore God's image in the earth and exercises his authority. Adam was a king to exercise authority and dominion and a priest to bear God's image and serve the garden. And note that Adam's dominion in Genesis 1.28 was over every living thing that moves on the earth. Which also talks about when Jesus returns, he will have reign over every living creature. That's why Paul wrote, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Because the creator has returned. All creation will know who he is. So you've often wondered, will people who say there's no God, no, they're going to know. They're, they're going to know. And Jesus is the second Adam, the real king the real priest. He's Lord of both heaven and earth. Like the first man, Jesus embodies God's image and God's rule. Jesus is also the last Adam. As the last Adam, or last man, Paul's terminology, Christ has finished the old creation. He has put to death all negatives 
and has brought forth the new creation. As the last Adam or last man, Christ has become a life-giving spirit. Today he reigns and we will reign with him. If we suffer with him today, we will reign with him tomorrow, Paul says. Day seven, real short, his rest. Chapter two, verses one and two. Thus the heavens and the earth are completed in all their vast array. But by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his labor. So on the seventh day, God rested. And after Christ reigns supreme, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Do you know where it says in Hebrews that at the end of all time, he'll say to us, enter into thy rest, thy good and faithful servant. At the completion of all of this, God is going to bring a Sabbath rest on his earth when Jesus has completed everything he's been asked to do. By taking Christ as our rest, we cease from our labors. And the Sabbath was merely a shadow. It's used throughout the New Testament, Colossians 2. It's used in the Old Testament, Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk 2. That the Sabbath was merely a shadow of what it's going to be like uh, to be in the presence of God. That it'll be peace, it'll be rest, it'll be comfort, it'll be celebration, it'll be a memorial. So let's go. So we've gone through the seven days. You can see this connection, how Jesus is revealed, how his life displays the same creative work. Now let's go to a couple of oddities or some pieces that are dangling out there uh, that I want to be able to, to touch on. Eve. The thing I want you to put there is Eve came from within creation. Because this is, I think I can make this point. Isaac, you may argue with me later. He can, he can either back me or tell me where to look different. He's got a real theology degree. So anyway, uh, under Eve, the new creation, because there was no death, you have to understand that. In fact, I was asked a question in the hallway and uh, the response made us both smile. Um, what's the first killing in, in the Bible? Most would say when Cain killed Abel, Right? It's actually not the case. The first killing in the Bible comes when Adam and Eve sin and God kills animals to cover them with skins. So previous to any of that, nothing died. So because nothing died, and you say, well, maybe, you know, what's going on here? All of a sudden, God from using the elements from creation, I want you to listen to see how God performed this, where we don't know how Adam materialized. We definitely know how Eve materialized. And so remember that term, from within the creation came this new creation. Genesis 2.18, and God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and and the birds of the air. There's an explanation. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, But for Adam, no helper, suitable helper was found. Now, no one ever laughs when I say this, but I find it funny. That means he dated the giraffe? What does that mean? (laughs) He hung out with the snakes for a while and said, nah, don't like you. And, you know, that means he, he hung out with them, but at the end of the day, there was emptiness. There was nothing like him. And it says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So we have the first appearance of Eve. This is what I'm going to quote now. It's rather lengthy. I don't normally do that when teaching because if you're like me, your mind will wander, but I think it's worth it. Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola wrote in their book, God did something extraordinary. He put his man into a deep sleep. This may be the first time that unfallen man had ever slept. Out of Adam's very being, notice the comparison to being made from the dust of the clay, Eve is made how? From within Adam. Can you hear with me now the echoes of Paul saying the first Adam and the second Adam, the first man and the last man? It says, out of Adam's very being, the Lord extracted another being. God takes a human out of the first human and builds a second human. God did his most magnificent work with Adam while Adam was asleep. This episode contains an important insight, says Viola and Sweet. When man rests, God works. So for all of us workaholics who don't have time for a Sabbath, pay attention to Genesis 1 and 2. When we rest in the Lord, God does an amazing creative work, both physically and spiritually, mentally, socially. This woman is not a part of the first creation. At that moment, Adam realized he is no longer alone. And according to the, in, this is my understanding, of the literal interpretation of the Greek in Genesis 2.23, when Adam saw her, he said, at last, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I am no longer alone. And I love that. We don't get that in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, it's at last, which means he's longed to have a companion. All this contains a pre-echo of John 19 and 20. In John 19, Pilate looks at a beaten, dejected Jesus, the second Adam, and do you remember what he says? After he's been beaten, he presents him to the people. Does anybody recall what he says? Behold the man. Does that echo at all Adam's response when he saw Eve? He said, behold, at last, someone like me. And Pilate uses it mockingly, behold a man. And we read about the crucifixion of Jesus when he died, his last words were what? Oh, that's an easy pop quiz. It is finished. The word finished reminds us of Genesis 2.1, that creation was completed and God rested. When Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Lord, she believed he was a... Remember we talked to her? I think it's Luke. Maybe it's John. I think it is John now. John 19. John says when she saw him, she thought he was the gardener. <laughs> Anybody tell me what Adam did for a living? He was a gardener. These are just coincidences, right? The new creation had emerged, and he was in the presence of a new Eden. And I think it's funny that he was buried in a garden. And having gone to the two locations in Israel where they suggested Jesus was born, or where he was buried, I definitely have my pick. It's a beautiful garden. Very peaceful. Just gorgeous. Jesus then breathed his spirit upon his disciples in the resurrection, and the second Adam became a life-giving spirit. Interesting, John was careful to point to the language that Genesis uses repeatedly with morning and evening. So there's so many of these. And I can go on and on. i got a whole list of them here, and I don't want to kill you with all of them. I want you to see the beauty. Just as Eve was inside Adam before she appeared, the church was in Christ before the foundation of the world. We are 
that second creation. The church and God's people was birthed from Jesus like Eve was birthed from Adam. And just as God put Adam into a deep sleep to extract Eve, Jesus was put into the deepest sleep of all death so that his church could be birthed. Just as God opened Adam's side to bring forth Eve, the side of our Lord was opened on the cross and out of it flowed water and blood, the outstanding marks of birth. Eve, the bride of Adam, was formed after the first creation was finished. She is a part of the second or new creation. The same is true of the new Eve, the church. So the last piece is the garden. Now, I know it's kind of funny. Of all the things I said last week, <laughs> the most reaction I got from y'all was that there are three gardens in the Bible. They're all significant. The first garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and the garden in Revelation where it all ends. So let's talk to the garden because that seemed to have scratched an itch. So in Genesis 2.15, God commanded Adam to cultivate and keep the, art, to keep the garden. The same Hebrew word is used to describe how the priests cared for the tabernacle of Moses. Very interesting. It's also the same word used for the tabernacle or the temple of Solomon, what the priests were to do there. They were to cultivate and keep it. In addition, we're told that God walked in the garden during the cool of the day. The same word is that God walked in the midst of the temple. So what you're seeing here is the Garden of Eden is duplicated in the tabernacle that took them through the wilderness. It's duplicated again in the temple. And for this reason, Isaiah called the temple the Garden of the Lord. And Ezekiel referred to it as the Garden of God. I didn't see any of this before. The minute I started to see it, I'm going, how could I miss this? Well, I don't get anything out of Ezekiel without help, so I can understand that. Isaiah, though, I should have seen it. So the parallel between the garden, the temple, and creation are striking. The garden of Eden faced east. The tabernacle and the temple face what? Oh, y'all can guess now, because if you don't see the connection, it's pretty simple. The garden was placed on a mountain. The temple was placed on what? On a mountain, Mount Zion, in the center of the city. The trees of the garden were called beautiful. The temple of God is always associated with what? Creative beauty. What are all the little intricate cuts and all the images throughout the temple? If you've ever studied it at all, church camp or any other place, you know what it is. It's all natural growing things. Pomegranates and, and birds. and It's a garden effect. So we know we can go with the angels, the cherubim and the seraphim. They're present both in the garden. What are they doing in the garden now? guarding the entrance back in. What were they doing on the Holy of Holy seat? Protecting and guarding. The picture of the seraphim over the mercy seat were with their angels ex- or their wings extended above them, protecting the Holy of Holies. It's no accident that the ancient Hebrews and rabbis regarded the Garden of Eden to be the first temple. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Give me a second, I'll get you there. The tabernacle was built in seven distinct stages. The temple of Solomon was built in seven years and dedicated after the seventh month. God created the heavens and the earth in how many days? Moses rested after he built the tabernacle. What did God do after he created the earth? He rested on the seventh day. It's not surprising then that the psalmist regarded the temple as a microcosm of heaven and earth. God walking, God tabernacling, a word they use, a Hebrew word that meant that God was resting and staying with. So Jesus is the reality of the temple, and here's why. 
In the temple, God's glory and presence dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a perfectly cubed room. I've always wondered growing up, why all of these 19 cubits and 22 cubits? What's a cubit? And then they translate it in English to inches, and you think, why are they so specific? It was a perfect cubed room, the tabernacle was, the Holy of Holies. And it grew in dimensions. When Solomon built the temple, the Holy of Holies was larger, but it was a perfect what? Cube. But it still remains perfection. The temple Ezekiel saw in his vision, the Holy of Holies was larger than the actual one. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, we're introduced to the New Jerusalem. And if you read the demarcations of the New Jerusalem, it is a perfect cube city that comes and rests on earth. In Revelation 21 and 22, the garden has been transformed into a city. The dwelling place or the house of God. The bride of Christ is called the house of God. From the beginning of creation, God has been building his house, which is also the bride of Christ. The dwelling place is not a physical building, it's found in Christ. In Christ, the garden of God, which is the temple of God, will fill the entire cosmos. So, do you see him? When you go through the seven days, can you see it there? If you're sitting here tonight going, I don't know. Just, just ponder it. There are way too many strings extending from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.